0: Hello and welcome back to the Rewatch Rewind. My name is Jane and this is the podcast where I count down my top 40 most frequently rewatched movies in a 20-year period. Today I will be discussing number 22 on my list, RKO's 1938 screwball comedy Bringing Up Baby, directed by Howard Hawks, written by Dudley Nichols and Hagar Wilde, based on a story by Hagar Wilde, and starring Katharine Hepburn and Cary Grant. Paleontologist David Huxley, Cary Grant, has a lot going on. He's about to marry Alice Swallow, Virginia Walker. The final bone to complete the brontosaurus skeleton he's been assembling for four years has just been found. And the wealthy Mrs. Carlton Random, May Robson, is considering a million-dollar donation to his museum. But while David is golfing with Mrs. Random's lawyer, Alexander Peabody, George Irving, His ball gets mixed up with that of zany, scatterbrained Susan Vance, Catherine Hepburn, who leads him on a series of misadventures involving wardrobe malfunctions, a thieving dog, trouble with the law, and two leopards. When my mom was starting to introduce me to old Hollywood, she got bringing up Baby from the library and said something along the lines of, I don't particularly like this one, but you probably will. And, um... That was an understatement. I was obsessed with this movie in my early teens. Like, to an embarrassing degree. I quoted it constantly. For example, whenever there was a curb or other uneven surface, I had to walk along it with one leg higher than the other in reference to the part when Susan loses the heel of one of her shoes and says, I was born on the side of a hill. I'm pretty sure I'd watched it a few times in 2002 before I started keeping track. Then I saw it five times in 2003, twice in 2004, and three times in 2005. And then as I got older I started to cringe at my initial enthusiasm and to listen to people I knew who didn't like it. I watched it once in 2008, once in 2013, once in 2014, once in 2016, and then I decided I liked it again, so I saw it twice in 2018, twice in 2021, and once in 2022. This movie flopped in its initial release, but its reputation has grown over the years and it's now generally considered to be the definitive screwball comedy, one of the greatest comedic films ever made, and according to some, one of the greatest films of all time of any genre. And yet, many of the people I know in real life who have seen it don't like it. Apart from my brother, I could always count on him to watch it with me. I think a lot of people find it too unhinged and chaotic and frustrating, and to be fair, they are correct in that assessment but it happens to be unhinged and chaotic and frustrating in all the right ways for me. I totally get that it's not for everyone, and I think it does tend to be overpraised now, perhaps to overcompensate for the lukewarm response it generated in 1938. Back then, Howard Hawks attributed the box office failure to the fact that there were no normal characters in the film, so there was nobody for the audience to identify with. And maybe that is the problem. Perhaps the people who don't like this movie are too normal for it, and the reason I enjoy it is because I have never been normal. I think especially when I was young, I saw a lot of myself in both David Huxley and Susan Vance, even though they're pretty much opposites. David is mild-mannered and socially awkward, which is how I tend to be around people I don't know very well. He also has a fairly passive role in the story. Lots of things happen to him while he's unwillingly along for the ride, and that was definitely how I perceived my life at the time when I was most into this movie. Susan, on the other hand, is outgoing and self-assured when she shouldn't be, and she frequently prattles on to the point of obnoxiousness, which is how I tend to be around people I'm comfortable with. Again, even more so when I was younger. The fact that I'm basically a combination of the two leading characters is not something I consciously noticed until recently, but I think it explains a lot. Like why I find this movie comforting when it seems like I should find it irritating. I truly cannot overemphasize how ridiculous this movie is. Nothing about it makes any sense, which normally would bother me, but the thing is, it's clearly not supposed to make sense. David refers to his skeleton as a brontosaurus, when at the time most paleontologists considered them the same as an apatosaurus, although recently that's been called into question again. The final bone he's waiting for is the intercostal clavicle, which would be a shoulder bone in between the ribs, which is not a thing in any animal that I know of. And the main leopard, Baby, is introduced to the story because Susan's brother sent him to her from Brazil, which means either the brother or the leopard was very lost since leopards are native to Africa and Asia. These factual errors introduced early in the story help set the tone for the nonsense that's about to ensue, and oh boy is there a lot of nonsense. I mean, not that there isn't a story at all, there definitely is, and the plot is relatively easy to follow. It's just absolutely bonkers. Nobody would wind up in jail for trying to get a leopard off a roof after mistaking it for a different leopard, but it's very funny to see what would happen if they did. Ultimately, this movie is just trying to be a comedy, and it very much succeeds at that. Most of the movie is witty dialogue between wacky characters in ridiculous situations, basically my favorite brand of humor. There is also excellent physical comedy, including lots of falling down, which normally I'm not a huge fan of, but for some reason this movie's brand of falling humor works for me. It's a fun, silly movie that is clearly not meant to be taken seriously. And I would argue that its central romance isn't meant to be taken seriously either. Because this movie has a male and a female lead, predictably they end up together. But the thing is, I don't believe that David and Susan truly have romantic feelings for each other. After they have run into each other a few times, Susan asks a psychiatrist she stumbled upon what he would say about a man who follows a woman around and when she talks to him he fights with her. Now, this is an extremely inaccurate representation of what has been happening. First, she took over his golf ball, then she stole his car, then she dropped an olive, causing him to slip and fall on his hat. He's not just randomly picking fights with her, he has reasons to be upset with her. But based on what she said, the psychiatrist tells her, the love impulse in men frequently reveals itself in terms of conflict. That leads Susan to conclude that David must be in love with her, and she then decides that she is also in love with him which very much sounds like the behavior of someone who does not understand romantic attraction. Throughout the rest of the movie, Susan keeps coming up with ways to prevent David from leaving, which she thinks is because she's in love with him, but comes across to me as a lonely person desperate for a friend. David spends most of the movie trying to get away from Susan. He does help her resolve some of the situations that she gets herself into, but mostly because she's either tricked or trapped him. At one point, he tells her, in moments of quiet, I'm strangely drawn toward you, but there haven't been any quiet moments, implying that he is not, in fact, drawn toward her at all. He does care about her well-being in spite of himself, but that doesn't automatically imply romantic feelings. At the climax, when David is trying to fight off the wild leopard that has been mistaken for the tame baby, he urges Susan to run, and she says, no, I won't leave you, I love you, and he just responds with an unpleasantly shocked, what? Granted, at the end, David confesses to Susan that in hindsight the time he spent with her was the most fun he's had in his whole life, to which she replies, that means you must like me a little bit, and he says, it's more than that, I love you, I think. But then she accidentally breaks the dinosaur skeleton that he spent four years working on, and before he recovers his power of speech, she says, oh David, can you ever forgive me? You do, and you still love me? And she embraces him, and he just goes, oh dear, and hugs her back, and then the movie ends without even remotely convincing me that they're really in love. I think the psychiatrist's suggestion combined with a has convinced them that they were thrown together by fate and destined to fall in love, so they decided that that was what had happened without really feeling it. The characters strike me as being better suited for friendship than romance, and I hope they discover that after the events of the film. I can see them meeting up every once in a while for more absurd adventures, but I feel like they would destroy each other if they tried to live together. Now, could this all be me projecting my aromanticism onto these characters so I could relate to them even more? Absolutely. But there's something indisputably queer about this movie that is definitely not all in my head. These characters are just so fascinatingly quirky that they can't possibly all be straight aloes. Apparently, the script had scenes of David and Susan declaring love for each other in the middle that Howard Hawks cut during production, which implies that the director agreed with me that the leads weren't intended to be too into each other that way. And, of course, there's that one line. If you're at all familiar with this movie, you probably know the one I mean, but for those who don't, After they take Baby the Leopard to Susan's aunt's country house in Connecticut, Susan convinces David that he needs to take a shower before he can go back to New York to marry his fiancée. And while he's bathing, she takes his clothes and sends them into town to be cleaned so David won't be able to leave. When he gets out of the shower, he has nothing to put on but a frilly woman's bathrobe. Then Susan's aunt, who also happens to be Mrs. Carlton Random, but he doesn't know that yet, enters the house and asks who he is, to which he replies, I don't know, I'm not quite myself today. And then when she demands to know why he's wearing the feminine robe, he can't come up with a good explanation, so he bursts out, because I just went gay all of a sudden. This was an ad lib by Cary Grant that somehow made it into the film and is now probably its most famous line. At the time, the word gay was being used by the homosexual community to refer to themselves, but that use had not entered mainstream consciousness yet, obviously, other censors wouldn't have allowed it in the movie. Most uses of gay in old films were clearly meant in the light-hearted, carefree sense, or were at least ambiguous enough that they could mean that. But in this context, that definition doesn't really make sense. I don't like forcing labels onto real people, but it does seem like Cary Grant was probably bisexual and therefore it's reasonable to assume that he would have been familiar with the less common definition. Of course, David is saying this sarcastically. He's wearing the feminine robe because that was the only thing available to wear when he got out of the shower. It has nothing to do with his sexuality or gender presentation. But the idea that the character would be familiar with that use of the word gay raises some interesting questions. In addition to Cary Grant, it's also been widely speculated that Katharine Hepburn was not straight. She certainly was at least somewhat gender non-conforming, frequently wearing pants at a time when that wasn't socially acceptable for women. Susan Vance is one of her more feminine-dressing characters, and she doesn't say anything about being gay, but right after that scene, when she hears that David is looking for clothes in her brother's old room, she cries, If he gets some clothes, he'll go away and he's the only man I've ever loved! I'm told that making it to 30 without having loved someone of the opposite sex is not a typical straight alloromantic experience. So even if my initial theory is wrong and David and Susan are attracted to each other romantically, that doesn't rule out the possibility that there's some form of queer. And as for David's fiancé, Alice, she's not in much of the movie, but she makes it clear that her marriage to David is going to be more of a business arrangement than a romance. She has no interest in a honeymoon or children, insisting that the dinosaur skeleton will be their child, and like, I know she was probably meant to be a stereotypically frigid, geeky girl with glasses, and it's harmful to imply that women can either have brains or heart. But at the same time, why would we need to have sex when we have a dinosaur skeleton is such an iconic ace attitude that I can't help but admire her. Anyway, she breaks up with David after Mrs. Carlton Random finds out who he is and decides not to donate her million dollars to a museum that employs someone as unhinged as him, but I hope Alice finds happiness, preferably with another asexual dinosaur enthusiast. Most of the other characters also seem at least somewhat queer. Constable Slocum and his assistant Elmer kind of seem like they're in a relationship with each other, for instance, and Major Applegate doesn't seem very straight either. All of this might have been completely unintentional, but what the heck, in honor of Pride Month, I'm declaring that every character in this movie is somewhere under the LGBTQIA umbrella. This is my podcast, and I make the rules. Bringing up Baby was reportedly very difficult to make. Production ended up taking 40 days longer than scheduled and costing $330,000 over budget. Part of that was because Cary Grant and Katharine Hepburn kept cracking each other up and ruining takes and because Howard Hawks had a fairly leisurely attitude on set, sometimes cancelling shooting early to take the cast to the races. They also had to deal with animals, which is always tricky. In modern films, there are usually multiple animals playing the same character, but in this movie they only had one leopard, named Nyssa, who played both Baby and the Vicious Circus Leopard. Catherine Hepburn seemed to enjoy working with The Leopard, and she wasn't afraid of it even though it did almost attack her at one point. But Cary Grant was terrified of Nyssa, so most of his scenes with The Leopard were either filmed with his stand-in, or his part and The Leopard's part were filmed separately. The visual effects were fairly advanced for 1938, and even though you can sometimes tell that the actor and Leopards weren't actually together, it works well enough that you won't really notice unless you're watching for it. There's also a dog named George who steals and buries the intercostal clavicle, and that dog was played by the famous Skippy, who had also played Asta in the first few Thin Man movies and appeared in a different Cary Grant movie called The Awful Truth. I haven't heard any stories about how Skippy behaved on the Bringing Up Baby set, but I assume he was very professional. Although the film's box office failure did nothing to help Katherine Hepburn's floundering film career in the late 1930s, I personally feel like it represents a significant turning point in her acting abilities. There's a staggering difference between her pre-bringing-up-baby performances and her post-bringing-up-baby performances. Early in her career, she was extremely overly dramatic, and while some of those films were still fairly good, many are painfully unwatchable. The story goes that initially she wasn't very good as Susan Vance either. She kept trying too hard to be funny, which ruined the comedy. Unable to get through to her himself, Howard Hawks asked vaudeville veteran Walter Catlett to show her what she was doing wrong, and Hepburn found him so helpful that she asked Hawks to cast him in the movie so he'd be around to give her more pointers. So Walter Catlett played Constable Slocum, and Catherine Hepburn learned how to do comedy. Her character is relentlessly annoying and over-the-top ridiculous, but Hepburn commits. The knowledge that she needed help to get there in no way detracts from the brilliance of her performance. She plays everything Susan does as if it's the most logical, natural thing in the world, and that's what makes the movie work. If Susan was aware of how silly she was, the whole thing would have fallen apart. We all know that I love Cary Grant, and I do greatly enjoy his performance here too, and I think they play off each other very well, but I feel like it's mainly Hepburn's performance that has compelled me to keep revisiting this film. As a young person, I related to certain things about Susan and wished I could be as carefree and self-assured as she was, although maybe a little less obnoxious. Now I relate to her less, I wish I had half her energy, but I still find her antics amusing. And it's also fun to see how much better her acting got after this movie. Clearly she took Catlett's lessons to heart and combined them with her natural talent and determination and hardworking spirit to fully become the force to be reckoned with that she's remembered as. There is so much more I could say about bringing up Baby, like how much I love the scene when Susan pretends to be a gangster to get out of jail, but I'm worried I would just end up quoting the whole movie if I kept going, so I think I'll wrap it up here. Thank you so much for listening, whether you love this movie, hate this movie, don't have a strong opinion about this movie, or have never seen this movie. I appreciate you all so much. This will be my last solo episode for a while, as I have guests lined up for the next three episodes, so stay tuned for some fun conversations. Next up is the fifth and final film I watched 19 times while keeping track. As always, I will leave you with a quote from that next movie. A date! What's a date?